Welcome, True Believer readers, to another episode of Let's Read Spider-Man. And here is a man who would never call someone a schlump, my well-mannered friend, Eddie. How are you today, Eddie? Uh, I'm doing great, and I have called someone a schlump, but I had a cosmic Spider-Man premonition yesterday. Oh. Do you want to hear about it, James B.? Let's hear about it. Yesterday, in a very boring part of my life, in an attempt to help the drainage around my house, I decided to break up a bunch of concrete with a jackhammer. And then I came inside and I read Giant Size Spider-Man number three. A jackhammer plays a prominent role in this book, James B. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it for any, but yes, it does play more than once. There's a jackhammer mentioned in this book. Blew my mind. So I'm hyped about my fateful uh, book we're going to do today. Well, without further ado, let's talk about from January of 1975, Giant Size Spider-Man and Doc Savage in The Yesterday Connection by Jerry Conway, Ross Andrew, and Mike Esposito. We open with Spidey chillin' on a rooftop when he spots someone blinking Morse code at him. The obligatory fight happens between Spidey and Decina, a mysterious pale blue woman with a force field. They eventually talk, and Decina shows Spidey a scene from 1934. I was not sure what was going to happen uh, until I read the next page here. Rather confusing opening. Yeah, and this book screamed filler story to me right away. <laughs> I was... I was horrified that I had to read this. Well, in part two, uh, it begins in 1934 with Doc Savage acrobatically foiling an assassination attempt on the newly elected mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia. Doc and his five-member crew drive their Doonesbury, which is my favorite vehicle to call anything from the 1930s, back to headquarters where Doc tries to decode a message he received. Yeah, Eddie, this entire part two section was just to introduce you to Doc Savage and his five-member crew. I also lost about 15 minutes of my life doing my Doc Savage research, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> All right. As the vision fades and we return to 1975, an earthquake strikes, causing Decina to faint. Soon after, Spuddy is attacked by a phantom, which he defeats with a jackhammer. There it is, everyone. Upon waking, DeSina projects another vision from 40 years ago. You might think this is to teach us about who this phantom is and what's going on, but honestly, <laughs> this entire section was just so Spidey could have a fight because this is basically the big fight in the book. <laughs> All right, well, uh, back to 1934, DeSina explains to Doc Savage and his crew that she's a time traveler from a parallel universe and that the phantom that fought Spidey was an evil energy construction of a scientist named Teros about to arrive in 1934. Teros has turned into a blue being of energy mist and Doc and his crew battle him. Doc defeats the creature with cadmium rods and seals him into the cornerstone of a high rise. Yeah, and this parallel universe, they went, made it so much more confusing than they needed to. They said that time and space were different in their world, and they weren't actually time travelers. They were space travelers, and time is constant. And then they couldn't even understand it because we're all too simpletons. It was, it was atrocious. And this whole section, though, was just to set up for this one or two panel conclusion. And Eddie, just finish up this monstrosity, please. Uh, after hearing the story, Spidey recognizes DeSina has been lying and abruptly attacks the cornerstone with the jackhammer. This releases the blue mist being Taros, who thanks Spidey 
and as he returns to his dimension with a furious Decina not far behind. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, we <laughs> we did that. The jackhammer goes in there. I, you know, I read this book and then I tried to reread it. There's a lot that happens in this in a very short amount of time. And mostly what I was confused by, how did Spider-Man figure out DeSina was lying? Did you did you get this, James B? Yeah, Spider-Man says, I knew you were lying because I could basically understand the language of the blue mist monster, and he was really mad at you. So I knew you had done something wrong, and he wasn't mad at anyone else. He's been hanging out with Zandu far too much, is all I have to say, if this is what he's coming to conclusions for. so yeah, Even in that last section, she says something like, uh, there was this scientist who I didn't get along with, she says, <laughs> and when I was talking to him, uh, he slipped and accidentally turned into this monster. And you're like, why did we care that you didn't get along? And then she's like, I tried to help him. And I could, I was unable to help him. And I'm like, wow, I thought you didn't get along with this guy. Why'd you even throw that in? Eddie. Uh, you know, oh, I, I think there's a problem here, even with, so you're saying there's a chance. Because I don't think our segment could fix this book. What do you think, James P.? The segment, so you're saying there's a chance, is when something happens in the story that seems a little likely it couldn't happen. I don't know if it applies to the biggest problem I have here. All right, Eddie, we have to talk about the cover. Yes. Have you noticed the cover? The cover <laughs> makes very little sense to what is to come. <laughs> I don't think this falls in the category of the So You're Saying There's a Chance segment because the cover shows Spider-Man and Doc Savage fighting together. Okay, not true, but we get it. Okay. Eddie, the villain on the cover... <laughs> so the villain on the cover is a satyr. And so as a human, like, you know, fleshy, you know, real human white male top and the bottom is a hoofed feet thing. Eddie, there's no 20 foot satyr in the book. Not a single time. I, nope. I almost forgot about this cover because everything else was so distracting all throughout. And Eddie on the cover, the female character is the enchantress from Thor. And then apparently they changed the story and had a completely different story inside because none of these people on the cover have anything to do with it. Right. Right. So confusing. I, you know, I, I I don't even know what to say because <laughs> none of it makes sense. And when I'm looking at Doc Savage again, Doc Savage is in this book a lot, and it's kind of explained who he is, but at no point, and they refer to it several times about his, like, yellow body and a yellow glint in his eyes. He's bronze. He's bronze. bronze. Uh, is yes. that explained in the book at all? That's explained. I did that 15 minutes of research. Oh, thank goodness. Doc Savage really is a character from the 30s and 40s that has like pulp books. Okay. His comic book appearances are very limited. I believe this is only one of two books he's ever crossing over with the Marvel hero. He is, in some regards, what Stan Lee considers the first superhero of all time. He has five sidekicks with him who eventually, as they write these books and rewrite them and reissue them, they start to fade them away because Doc Savage is, quote, better than all his friends in all their ways and they usually just end up getting captured or in the way. I thought he was going to be granddad to the molten man is what I really thought he was going to be. Let's get let's get back to the books that we understand slightly Thank better. Uh, from January 1975, The Amazing Spider-Man 140 and One Will Fail 
by Jerry Conway, Ross Andrew, Frankie Okoya, and D. Hunt. To start this book, we recall Peter Parker's capture by the Jackal and the Grizzly. The Jackal has put a mechanical trap onto Peter's forearm to act as a homing device. Through a radio speaker in the device, he tells Peter it will disintegrate his arm if he takes it off. Uh, Flash Thompson visits Peter's rundown, empty apartment and meets Glory Grant, first appearance, by the way. Uh, Flash is jealous that Peter has attractive neighbors. Flash comments that all his neighbors are old women with Social Security. Um, after a stressful moment, Peter takes a chance and gets the tracking device off. As Spidey, he swings off to gather clues about the Grizzly from J. Jonah and determines the Grizzly's hideout. There, they battle, with Spidey tearing the Grizzly's exoskeleton apart and defeating him. That's the end. That's th that's it, right? <laughs> yeah, and I noticed you didn't have a lot of notes in this book, so thank you for letting me stick a couple sentences in the middle, because this was a really short summary from you. I wrote it, and I looked back, and I thought, you know, I didn't include Gloria Grant here, so I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to make another Joe Robbie trip up and say, oh, I'm so happy to see her. <laughs> Because uh, the way you put it there means that she is likely to return several times at least. So uh, everything else, I mean, there's just not much. Well, Eddie, I knew you were really light on this. Uh, I could tell before the show started that you were going to be not having much to do. We had a book that you weren't a fan of and then a book you had no notes on. So I know you don't use Twitter much, but I went out and I asked the listeners of Let's Read Spider-Man to contribute some questions and comments for tonight's show. All right. That's wonderful. Let's hear it, James B. That's right. It's time for a new segment titled, Hey, you're not a nobody. You're a somebody. So here we go. You ready? Okay. At Alec Porbust says, Ross Andrews' art really shines through, and I think it's time Peter and Flash move back in together. So we'll start with the first part. Any comments on the on the art? I know that that's not usually an area you'd focus on as much as I do, maybe. But what'd you think of uh, of the artwork? I, you know, the one interesting aspect of this book was it was a very striking cover. Um, unlike the previous book, really, the cover kind of explains the whole story. Uh, it's a summary in itself. Uh, so I really, I mean, I like the cover, particularly Spider Man swinging directly into it, like directly at us. Um, the other sections. I mean, I agree. It's it now that it's been pointed out. There's a lot of great art that happens in this book. Yeah, this is um, this cover way back when we did one of our earlier podcasts. I think we were talking about the Sandman back in like episode four, and we were talking about another cover. And I said, "Look, it's going to be a long time before we see a cover with this much activity on it." And this is the one that I had in mind because oh. I, you know, I own this book, so I, I knew this. Uh, what do you think about Peter and Flash living together? I, you know, I I liked it, honestly. I thought it was an interesting did, dynamic. To did you notice that in. Peter has no furniture in his apartment at all? He's moving in, right? So I, I'm not blaming him. Well, he does say that Flash is like, you have no furniture. And he's like, well, on the salary that J. Jonah Jameson pays me, I can only afford the apartment. I mean, he has, and he has no furniture. Nothing. Sleeping on the ground. Right, and Flash thinks the place is terrible until uh, Glory or Gloria, you know, she goes by both names, Grant walks in, and then it's all like, you know, hey, I'm your neighbor, My, I'm just going to come on in and, you know, invite you to crazy parties and, you know, dress like a girl from the 70s, and 
you know, Flash is all like, va, va, voom. And all of a sudden he <laughs> takes it back and says, this is a great place to live. So anyway, we have, uh, we have another question slash comment from the listeners. Okay. At a future movie writes, okay, how does Parker do his best heavy thinking? Is it in a college chemistry lab or swinging over Manhattan? Now, Spider-Man often says something like, I'm going off to clear my thoughts, but obviously he sometimes needs to go into a chemistry lab to, to he's in the chemistry lab when he re, decides to remove this device from him. It's not in his apartment. He just yes. does it in the, in the lab. So mm-hmm. where, where does he do his best thinking? What do you think? Well, you know, he often says swinging over Manhattan de-stresses him. I, you know, maybe not in those words, but solves a lot of his problems. But we cannot forget that Peter Parker is a scientific genius and he has come up with countless ways by now on how to solve extremely difficult problems that full-on professors and experts have struggled with. I got to go with the lab here, James B. What is his uh, major again, just real quick? He is a physics major. (laughs) He is a physics major, of course. (laughs) Um, So He's not a mover. So on the page where he's taking off his... it's, it's page 11 as the book is titled. I don't know if you can go back to page 10. Do you have access yeah, to this? I got it. Yeah, right. right the me. last panel where it says, this is Flash we were just discussing uh, from the Alex Porbus comment. It says, you know, I take it back, Parker. This is the greatest apartment I've ever seen. Okay. So <laughs> yes. so that we have a comment about that panel. And let me just call that one because this is, we are, you know, we are basically getting live, uh, live comments here. This is from at villains demand and they say is it me or does flash look like a 1975 version of eddie brock now eddie do you know who eddie brock is i do know who eddie brock is (laughs) at least from the movies (laughs) okay so what do you think here could is flash looking like like flash or like someone different here in this panel wow you know he doesn't now that's brought to my attention he doesn't look like the kind of classic flash to me Hey, he looks clean, a little more clean cut, a little more serious. Well, he's gone through an evolution from being a really 60s kind of military looking guy. And then we got. He's wearing we got, the black. Look at the next panel. He's wearing the black shirt. You know, he looks tight shirt. Yeah, this is I think that's a very astute comment from uh, at Villains Demand. So we got some uh, we got some great listeners out there here. Um, and I want to thank everybody for uh, participating in our new segment called, Hey, You're Not a Nobody. You're a somebody. And hopefully uh, these three <laughs> listeners can become even more famous by participating in this segment on our show. Please reach out to them and tell them how great they are. Eddie, speaking of uh, becoming famous, when you become famous, you get sponsors. And uh, okay, well, you get sponsors even if you're not famous, trust me. <laughs> All right. We have a sponsor, and Eddie, it is a returning sponsor with a great new product. Are you ready to hear about this? Well, now that I know I'm a somebody, absolutely. Well, I didn't say we are. I mean, you know, <laughs> at Alec Porbus, at Villains Demand, and at a future movie, those three oh, are, are somebodies. Okay, all right. But Eddie, let me ask you something. Do you lose important things like your remote or your car keys or your phone? Because it can get expensive to hire an Uber bellhop to find all your items, and you don't have time to be searching. Tell me, has this ever happened to you? Uh, Sadly, rather often. Well, Eddie, our good friends, the company that brought you 
some of the products you love, the Nullifier and the Psycho Intensifier, have used their technology for good once again. That's right, Eddie. The Jackal Harness will help you keep track of your phone, wayward pets, or children. Let me explain how this works. It's a device that allows you to rest and relax at home while tracking those things that mean the most to you, like your phone, your pets, and your children. Here's how you use it. You put the harness on your phone or your loved one. You track them on your computer. It's that easy. You might be thinking, oh, it's not gonna, it doesn't fall off your phone and your pets and children can't remove the device without disintegrating their lamps, so there's no need to worry. Are you willing to stop wasting time and money on Uber bellhops to look for your children and find them quickly and cheaply with the jackal harness? Or do you like wasting money? This sponsor is usurping a past sponsor of ours, right? Creating an obsolete sponsor, right? I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Not, We don't need Uber bellhops anymore if we have this device, right? We could use Uber bellhops for other things. Oh, okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't have my Uber bellhops running around looking for my children. My children are older. You know, they don't get lost. I don't have a pet at home, so I don't have to worry about those things. Uh, so I have, a, and, and we all know because I'm a dad, I have a heart, I have a holster for my phone, so my phone doesn't get lost either. Okay, so we don't have to worry about that. But you, you don't have, your children could wander away from you and they could get lost. Like you're responsible for them. It's possible. It, you know, is there anywhere in the small print about shaking violently? Uh, I'm a little concerned about you know, this could be no. very similar to the one. I, I think you're good with the jackal harness. You can just slap it yeah. on them. They good to go. So yeah, I, I can just take it off anytime, right? I don't have to like. You can really... take it off. You can take it off anytime you need okay. to. Okay. Yes. They right. can't take it off without you know disintegrating their limb or something like that. So everything's fine. You just have to be like, hey, I'll take this off you and it's safely, and then good to go. Good to go. So Eddie. Uh, I don't know if you need one for your dog, Pepper, um, but that would be one, two. you have any more pets? Just You want three of these? Just, just uh, poor old Hamburger. He's hanging in there. He's having a good night. I don't think that, he – yeah, he's not going to need one, Eddie. Don't be <laughs> – now you're being foolish. So, all right, we'll put you down for three. Is there anything else you want to talk about <laughs> regarding the uh, – this this Spider-Man, there's two things that really bug me in this book. One was the harness on Peter's arm – this whole sequence, like, it shows him sweating. He's got a blowtorch, like a Bunsen burner blowtorch that he's cooking away. And the jackal made very clear it was going to shake his limb off. And then he just gets it off. Like, <laughs> I love this. I'm, I disagree with you so, so much. I did not like this. I, it's be, I was reading it, like, scared. Like, And the nice thing was they had, you know, I have the book. So there's like those commercials in between. There was two pages of like, you know, <laughs> you can grow a beard or you can like find a penny worth like a ton of money. Tired of being a 90 pound weakling. Uh, well, actually, there was a who also mounts a He-Man body. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> but then it comes off on the next page. So I didn't even see it coming. So I was like, woo, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I, it's just I thought it was good. No, nothing happens. Though. It was a bluff, like, though. It should have it should have come off his arm and then like. The jackal should have realized it, and something could have happened. I don't know. All right. So, all right. My bigger problem here isn't that that this happened. I understand you and I disagree. My bigger problem is that the harness on his arm has a ability to communicate with him. Like the jackal is is essentially talking through it, right? He's saying yes. things like radio communication. We could yeah, say. he's saying like. Don't act too hastily, my teenage tool. If you tamper with this device, if you try to force it open, unlock it, or jimmy it anywhere at all, 
it will vibrate itself to powder instantly. This, and it just keeps going. There's like, it's like a, you know, a five minute monologue of what's it going to do to him. But all this information is coming out of this harness. Like it's that powerful that he can put it in. The, I don't know if it's pre-recorded or he's, or he's communicating with him, but oh, yeah, that's possible. You know, I don't know, but that's, that's crazy to me. I'm like, what? That's, you know, I never, I had no problem that it really didn't work. It's a bluff. It's a lot of lies. We just read a whole, we just read a whole book about Decennian. That was the whole thing was a lie. Was it not? <laughs> Does it, is it anywhere in the canon that it's going to continue? I guess I don't really know. So, <laughs> well, she does lie right at the end. That. All right. Fair enough. But this just amounts to nothing. And it takes up a large portion of this book. So. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson is uh, sleeping under a, newsp- under a newspaper. Did you like that? In his office. Quite hilarious to see him in his socks, actually. Yeah, and he, and he and Spider-Man gets called a miserable miscreant, and then he puts a cigar in J. Jonah Jameson's mouth and lights it. I thought you'd love this section. I did like that section quite a bit, actually. <laughs> and then J. Jonah gives him this huge explanation of all the things that he did and how it all went down and everything. He gives us yes. like the whole backstory. A lot of backstory about the grizzly here, but yeah, I also like the time that the grizzly isn't really a strong person. He's like a big fatty wearing a wait for it, a harness. So the jackal is like a harness creation expert. The jackal is some sort of scientist. Yeah, I, where something is, of a scientist, right? What happens to the jackal after he gets Peter gets the arm thing off? We just don't see the jackal for the rest of this book. I, I would definitely argue that the jackal is more important to go after than the grizzly. Does he know where the jackal is? Well, no. I guess he has an easier time figuring out where the grizzly is. But Well, I mean, everyone knows where the grizzly is because it's some, like, random, like, you know, I'm looking for Maxwell Markham. Oh, he's at Halversham <laughs> Gym on West 34th. Like, yeah. everybody knows where the Too grizzly easy. hangs out. But Eddie, you didn't think it was cool that he had a harness built into him? Uh, like, not my not my style. We've we've seen this before with Doc Ock putting harnesses on people. That yeah, but them. I'm just saying that they made a connection in the book that they had a harness for the weapon on his arm, and then they had a harness for like it was oh, like related. I'm like the jackal's into oh. building harnesses. Oh, this is like the jackal's expertise here that he's showing. Yes, yes. Maybe yeah. the people who made the nullifier and the psycho intensifier and the jackal's harness could make you like a strong harness that you, something you could use. Mm. Right, another product. Take more of your money. You will have no furniture either in your apartment pretty there, soon. You'll be uh, just like there could be a company that latches on to our mm. our idea. That's true. <laughs> um, Eddie, these books. Uh, you and I don't agree on 140 because I actually liked 140. I, I did not like 140. I, you know, in a, what did we learn? Yes. Cue the, what did we learn music? <laughs> no, you don't have to play the music, Eddie. We have music <laughs> Okay, okay. It's, it's not make your own music. <laughs> go ahead and tell us bullets. Go. We learned that the jackal knows how to make exoskeletons. Peter's finally living on his own. There's a strong association between Peter Parker and Spider-Man, but I think we already knew that. Flash Thompson is going to start filling the role of Harry Osborn. Jay Jonah sleeps in his office without his shoes on and his couch. The Jackal is a more prominent supervillain. And I think that's enough for our summary. Um, did you have anything else about either issue you wanted to discuss? <laughs> uh, I I think that's it for me, James B. I, you know... I felt not much happened in this Spider-Man and in giant size, I was just confused a lot. So 
You want to talk about uh, Amazing Spider-Man 140 or uh, about the our three special guests who contributed tonight, which we appreciate again. That would be Alex Porbus uh, at Future Movies and at Villains Demand. If you want to give us some props, uh, how could people reach out to find us? Uh, you could email us anytime at letsreadspiderman at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Let's Read Spidey. Um, well, it's time for the close. Uh, and I'm James B. here with... Eddie. And remember, listeners, if you work for J. Jonah Jameson, don't expect to have money for furniture. Goodbye. Goodbye. What did you think of the Jackal's plan to slap a harness on Peter Parker and then say, okay, now I'm setting, I'm going to have an operation on you. You knock, he puts him, knocks him out, by the way, right? Puts the harness on him and then sets him free. He like wakes up like a guy missing a kidney now with a harness on his arm and says, go be out there and find Spider-Man for me. Like that's what he essentially is saying, right? All he had to do was just, Hold him in his hideout until Spider-Man came to him. I guess that was... Well, no, he thinks Peter Parker will find Spider-Man because that's what his job is. He thinks he'll... He thinks... Mm. He thinks. Do you think it's the opposite? You think Spider-Man finds Peter yeah, Parker I, in that's, world? I mean, I, if I knew there was such a strong association between the two of them, I would just be like, I'm going to keep keep you under my watch and there's a good chance Spider-Man will show up to be like, hey, where's Peter Parker? Let's see what he says here. I guess he would have no idea where Peter Parker was. Right, right. The Grizzly says, You're sure this punk can lead us to that creep Spider-Man jackal? And he says, Haven't I told you? Wherever Peter Parker goes, Spider-Man is not far behind. Yeah, so he should be following him. How else does Parker manage those news photos? So they think they're friends. But if Peter... You're right, though. Why would he let him free? You know, if he says Spider-Man's not far behind. Yeah. He should just tell them. Yep. That's it. Good point. Boom.